and welcome to Sustain, the podcast we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Y'all. I know that's not a question. I'm here today at State of the Open, which is the first conference of a site in the UK where we talk about open source and the general openness of all of British stuff. It's super fun. Of course, we have a sustain track here, and that's why we have a podcast. And my mini podcast guest today is Huey Asgerson, whose name I probably just butchered, but I'm just going to say Huey. And Huey works with me at Open Collective, which is really cool. But for a long time, listeners will be aware that Open Collective has multiple arms. I, of course, work not for the ink or the website, but for Open Source Collective, which is a 501c6 dedicated towards understanding the needs of open source projects. Huey works at Open Collective Europe, where you are new there. You only announced that when? Well, it's been maybe three or four months. It's amazing. So Open Collective Europe, what gives? So Open Collective Europe is, well, quite simply, the fiscal host of Open Collective in Europe. What makes us a bit special, if you compare us to Open Source Collective, is that European nonprofit structures allow us to have very broad purpose. We can focus on almost whatever we want within a social impact area within which open source fits in. So we've basically constrained ourselves to six impact areas that we work with. We is you and mainly JF, but Jean-Francois. Jean-Francois and Ivan. And Jean-Francois is the executive director and founder. I'm coming to work with him. And Ivan, who's our ops, main ops guy. And you have the experience because you've been running communities for years, doing all sorts of fun art conferences and the like in Sweden, right? So I've done that, co-founded with my friends, a independent culture house, which cool. is self-sustaining and working really well right now. Pretty exciting place in Stockholm to believe I'm there. I have in the past, in my previous days, I've worked a little bit of participatory politics. I have worked with a distributed think tank of citizens called Edge Writers, which does citizen engagement and research projects. So it's always been this sort of participatory, grassrootsy, collective intelligence stuff. You mentioned earlier that one of your projects areas or some of them do actually encompass open source. And I actually know you host some open source projects. So another thing that I run is co-budget. Co-budget is a platform that helps you to do co-budgeting itself, an open source project, just like Open Collective. But in Open Collective Europe, we do host open source projects. We host quite a lot of Mastodon servers. We also host Manjari, which I think is a Linux distribution. Sounds like it. And yeah, a few other open source projects. Because of the way we're structured, we can actually host open source projects in the equivalent of the 501c3, which is quite different than the way it is in the US. If it's based in Europe. So I guess a lot of ways we can go here, but I want to tie this back to either Open UK or sustainability. And I want to know, like, why is it important to think about these? tax filing structure of your open source project. Why would I want to go with OCE to host my project if I'm a European collective of people working on some random project? So a couple of different reasons. One of them is that we are eligible to receive tax deductible donations. That's a big difference. Yeah. Another big difference is that because we're a nonprofit, we can receive money from any sort of foundation or public entity that funds nonprofits. 
So that way you can actually fund your open source projects as a nonprofit, which I seem to understand is quite difficult in the US. Very hard to get like nonprofit status. It's one of the reasons yeah. like OCF, that's not JF, nor OCE, nor OSC, nor OCI, nor OSI. Open Collective Foundation is a 501c3 that basically is a giant coverall for all sorts of different charity like projects that it's much harder for them to get that registration with the US government. Right. But for you, you allow that for European projects. Yes. And we can allow it for projects that are based in the US and Europe. So transatlantic stuff also down. Transatlantic stuff also down. Sweet. Yes. So we're talking about funding to nonprofits. How do you set that up? Is that with EU? Is it in each country? Do you just set up a GmbH if I'm in Germany? Like what goes on there? So in the EU, we have free movement of people and capital and goods, yes. which is sort of what that whole thing is about. Yeah. It means that any EU citizen can work for anything in any other EU country because there shouldn't be any barriers. There's no issue if I live in Madrid and I'm Spanish or Italian to me work for a Finnish company. No problem. There's going to be problems with things like social benefits. Okay. There's going to be problems with that your taxation has to happen in one country and not another. But when it comes to incorporating a project, it's not an issue. Cool. So we are set up in Brussels. But there are reasons for why we would like to have entities in other countries, and we are setting those up. And those reasons are that some countries have funding institutions that only give to organizations in that country. Germans, the Sovereign Tech Fund was yes. only going to give to German open source projects. Absolutely. Sweden has quite a few of those, which is why I'm working on saying something else there. Italy has the same. So over time, we're going to develop a network to make it possible, regardless of where you are in Europe, to set a project up in the place where it makes the most sense and run it from wherever. Now, there's been a long-standing history of open source projects being awesome and powerful within Europe. I'm thinking of the Pirate Party has done a lot of really cool work. Chaos Communication, on, right? CCC, yeah, it's awesome. So you're just allowing other people to do similar things with a lower overhead. Yeah, pretty much. And I will also say this, that because we have a broad purpose that really has its root in resilient communities, it means that we could host things that just contain open source as a part of what it's doing. For example, if you are running a collective that is motivated by trying to change something in your hometown, and one of the things that you do in that collective is you maintain a Mastodon server. Or a participatory budget that's run through, like the city of Paris does. Absolutely. Yeah. So we can host things that are really hybrid in that way, where they're using open sourcing software as something they're doing, but yep. they're also trying to achieve another goal. So just to make it sound a little bit less like an open source collective pitch. So sorry about that, everyone. What are you doing in Britain? Britain's not in the EU. Why are you here? Well, even though Britain's not in the EU, there is a lot of close collaboration. It's cool. not as hard as people would think to make things work between EU and Europe even now. Also, because of proximity, there is just a lot of no connection. But there's also an important point there, which is that actually 50% of all philanthropic donations in Europe happen in the UK. Cool. The UK is immensely much larger than any other country when it comes to private funding of charities. Is there like a major tax loop that they're all taking advantage of? Because the UK is also the major financial hub for a ton of things, right? Sure, that could be a part of it. But I think a larger part of it is actually cultural. Huh. And I think that this is what has played into why private philanthropy is so big in the US. The US, of course, famously 
has borrowed its legal system from the UK Britain. Yeah. Britain. And I think a lot of these sorts of things sort of made it with the other parts of waspy culture to just sort of, you know, propagated into that whole philanthropy part. With Algonquin influence, just going to say. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Fascinating. So you're coming to this conference here with a very business mindset, also a very art mindset, and very resilient community mindset. What are some of the things that you've noticed here? What's been interesting for you? Well, I spent most of the time in the sort of sustained sidetrack. I think we had a very interesting conversation about resilience. That's your first sustain, isn't it? It's my first sustain. Cool. Yeah. And we had this very interesting conversation about resilience as opposed to sometimes not being the same thing as sustainability in huh. source funding. Elaborate. Well, you can sustain something that's bad. You can sustain a bad structure. Yes. But resilience is about building the buffers that make it possible for the system to survive impacts and crises. So you can sustain a system that is not resilient. You can sustain a system where a single developer is maintaining a crucially important yep. package, but it's not resilient. And you can uh, also have a resilient virus. I mean, you can have resilient yes. things that are not good too. Absolutely, 100%. Okay. You can have bad things that are also resilient. Yeah. Yes. But when we're talking about resilience of open source funding and open source ecosystem, it's not necessarily the same thing as talking about sustainability. And there was a conversation there where we're going into that corporations and companies that sponsor open source. They think about it from the sustainability point of view. They think about, I want this particular package not to break in the exact way that I need it to function. But if they were to think about it in terms of resilience, they would perhaps more think about it as, I want there to be at least two other packages that do more or less the same thing, but for slightly different niches and maintained by their own community for their own purposes. Much like there are different Linux distributions that are able to come in and sort of take slack in different sorts of situations, right? Yeah. And of course, there's a difficult sort of balance to walk there when you're talking about how much redundancy is wasteful. And I think this is something that goes way beyond open source. I think this is something that we need to think about in society in general. I wonder about this a lot for open source projects. Like they all need to grow, maintainers need to leave. How much of that is good? How much of that is unhealthy? It's difficult because each project kind of has a different standard depending on where they are. Look, like in society, sometimes if we're very efficiency-minded, we'll say that redundancy is bad. We'll say that there shouldn't be multiple sort of things that are doing the same thing that's wasteful. But that's quite short-sighted because if you have single points of failure, well, you're going to have pretty catastrophic failure. Plus, you don't uh, talk about, say, whether or not it's just... There are other metrics. If everyone is happy spending time farming, let them farm. Perhaps going on a slight tangent, David Eagleman, neuroscientist that's written some pretty awesome books, he talked about human vision. And what he said was that like the brain is like a team of rivals. We don't actually have one way through which we see. There are multiple competing ways in which the brain is trying to process visual input. And those competing ways are, they're actually competing for our interpretation of what is true. And a lot of biological systems are set up in this way. There are complex systems with redundancy where these different signals are sort of competing and together it becomes this emergent property, right? Yeah. And that's, I think, what we're talking about. We're talking about resilience. And this is why resilience is hard to quantify. 
Where yeah. sustainability is a bit easier to quantify. Can you give me an example in software? So an example in software could be that if there are multiple libraries that are achieving the same thing, and you have something that's equivalent of the heartbleed vulnerability that comes out, two out of three of those libraries might be hit, but the third one is not. That's where resiliency matters, but sustainability doesn't necessarily. Well, sustainability yeah. in this case just might... For the whole system or for each project. Yeah, if you just yeah. focused on sustainability, yeah. you might in fact have said, look, let's pool yeah. all these resources, merge these projects and pay one group of developers well instead of paying three groups of developers in their nights off. That might not have been the more resilient mm. choice. So I think that there are ways to look at that where we need to weigh these two considerations. Well, that's why, I mean, here on the Resilience Podcast, we often talk about these things. So thank you for coming on. We are running up on time. And so my flat joke notwithstanding, let's move forward and ask you where can people get in touch with Open Collective Europe and Huey? Yeah, so the easiest way to reach me is hugi at opencollective.com on the email. If you come to the Open Collective Slack, Again, tag me, H-U-G-I. I'm on Twitter as A-E-R-U-G-I-X. Mm. A-E-R-U-G-I-X. Not very easy to say on a podcast, but... That's fine. Whatever. I do want to mention for listeners, I'm not sure I say this enough. We have a Slack channel on the Open Collective Slack, and it's called Sustain OSS. It's actually for you, the Sustain Slack room. We also have another channel called Sustain-Links where we drop links every week about what's happening in the state of Sustain and the state of open source. And then we talk about them on alternate Fridays at a thing called uh, Sustain Together. So if you're listening to this and you know that and you want to talk on Slack with other cool people in real time, come join the Open Collective Slack, join Sustain OSS, ping Huey if you want to. That would be great. Huey, it's been great having you on. Best of luck with Open Collective Europe. I'm not just saying that in a self-serving way, but like I really hope you do well. I hope you take more projects out of OSC. Or together with OSC, because you can also do that. So that's it's great. All one organism, man. Yeah. We're all working together. Sweet, bro. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yo, yo, yo. Hello, and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Why don't I dye my hair more often? Yes. <laughs> Very glad to be here during State of Open, which is the conference here in the UK. This is the first of its kind. And we're at the Sustain Podcast venue, which is a basement in the middle of nowhere, looking out over a stage. So if you hear stuff, that's how it is. My guest today is someone who has been on the podcast before. So you may recognize her laugh already. If not, he was very easy to recognize in the conference crowd. <laughs> Sometimes I get you confused with Don Foster. But that's okay, only from behind. Then you turn around like, oh, no, purple hair, great. Yes, um, yes, the purple hair. They, Dawn and I check in with each other on counts at the end of each conference for how many times she gets thought of as me and how many times I get accused of being her. You know, we keep a rounding tally. At one conference, actually, though, I gave her one of my sparkly headbands, which then really confused the count because people were looking for that sparkly headband. And then, yeah, so I'll bet she had that on too. So, you know. So this is Salona Bornwald, by the way, IEEE. That's who we're talking to today. Hello, Salona. Hello. Actually, I actually have a question for you based on that about software sustainability. So there is a conference route. There is a conference crowd. You yes. start going to enough of these things. It's like, oh, yeah, there's that person. Oh, there's the one kilt guy. Love that dude. Totally, totally. Uh, we all thought post-COVID, maybe things would go a bit more regional be more local. Maybe we wouldn't have to do this large conference stick, the stickers. 
the red eyes, all the things. And right. I'm curious for you, what do you think about the sustainability of the ecosystem at large that it still depends upon individual members of large projects and corporations going to these events? I think that really hurts the inclusion and accessibility because of the money issues. In fact, one of the things that, you know, I've been talking about is when we do these consortiums, we should be less corporatized. We should have other types of representation on there. And when we do that, we need to understand that we need to budget for this. We need to budget for the fact that if we want to include certain nonprofits, that they can't always afford to do all these things that we do. And it's very problematic. And I think it's come up here a fair amount, especially at FOSTEM, on the whole idea of they were talking a lot about, well, government's nice and it's nice that government is earmarking funds for open source. But what does that procurement process look like? Is it just going to always be the same old, same old now getting that government money and perhaps corrupting us Mm. on the open source side? I mean, it was hard to keep our balance when corporate came in. Is it going to be even harder when government? mandates certain things that cause poor behavior. In fact, Jimmy Wales brought that up in his as well, as to how do we actually merge these two different cultures in a way that won't have us losing our soul. Tell me a bit more about the type of diversity and inclusion that's left out of conferences like this. Obviously, nonprofits, you just mentioned that. Right. People who don't have the money to send someone to 10 conferences a year on seven different continents. Exactly. I don't know if we've done Antarctica yet. Does this also leave out community members? Can you tell me more about the vectors that you see from your experience? Because you know what I do here. I see it happening on a lot of different things. And while sometimes it's fun to be a person who travels around and it, and it does help with conversations because I'm findable. Everybody knows, everybody kind of knows what they're going to get. And so it becomes a useful outreach mechanism. And I get that. And there's nothing better than having the person be there in person for it. You know, I did a lot of virtual meetings. But, you know, it still isn't the same as the in-person stuff. It's still not the same of being able to, honestly, I don't know if it's correct these days, but give someone a side hug. Yeah. (laughs) That means a lot. We are still in our bodies. We are humans. We still have these certain needs in regards to it. And I think that it is still important, but it is bad because it does leave out a lot of different people. It leaves out a lot of women, especially if they're, you know, one of the primary caregivers well, it leaves out men too, if he's the singular caregiver, it leaves out the handicapped, it leaves out the disenfranchised, whether it be power or money. There's a lot of stuff there. I mean, what happens if you do open up your speakers and you get speakers, but you can't afford to pay them to be here, where you can't at least afford their travel and hotel? There's a lot that's there to address that's problematic. I think video, while not perfect, is better. In regards to that, because basically then your barrier to entry becomes power, internet, still an issue in a lot of It is still an issue. Hard. It is. It's yeah. very much so an issue. It's very much so an issue talking with a lot of these rural broadband groups. But in America, there's lots of people who are very disenfranchised in regards to access. Something of the U.S. doesn't have good internet access. And like 30% doesn't have internet at all. Like it's a ridiculously high number. For- How you measure it, it gets a little it does, controversial. Yeah. In fact, that's like the big thing that's happening now, right? Is Biden, they allocated out this $48 billion to fix that infrastructure issue. Yep. But then at first they were going to go off of the FCC maps, which are 10 years old from the census and also corporately biased. So the sad thing that I'm told is they had a form to fill out online to let us know if you don't have internet access. And I'm like, oh my God, have we not learned? Oh, email me that your email is down. What's going to happen? Like, first of all, 
those disenfranchised people don't even know that you exist and don't even know that this program is happening in the first place. And secondly, they have to drive and spend money to go three hours to vote at a library. I mean, that's just never going to happen. You have to go instead talk to the groups that purposely work very hard to represent them and normally are doing it on skeleton budgets and don't have that ability to participate. Reminds me of the Onion article or video about the uh, the Copa International Airport, where if you lose your luggage, send a letter to the place where your mother was born. And it's like, what? It's ridiculous things going on. So you work at IEEE, you work at SA Open, which is a subsect of IEEE, which is a huge conglomeration of yeah. all sorts of standards bodies. It's a bunch of different technical societies. Yeah. And so... We have everything from power and electricity to a computer society. To open source to, governance now with Stephen Wally. That yeah, yeah, that's one of one of our standards working groups. We have, it, it's a huge organization. It's over 400,000 people worldwide in 160 countries. Sure. We have something like 57 societies, I think, that are yeah. all... Basically, if you have an electronics engineering school, you probably have one of our chapters. So we have all these regional ones. And then I'm in a special group, which is SA, which is standards. And yes, we now have the OSSPG, the Open Source Software Project Governance Group. We're working on best practices. I hope to be doing some more, perhaps in best practices of open data. And well, we've got like a ton of stuff going on. And well, you were even in Brussels, right? You just had like a two day. Yeah. Event. Yeah. We had a two day one for OSSPG, which was, you know, interesting, right? Because our vice chair is Vicky Brasseur and she wasn't here. So I, I didn't make it. I couldn't like, yeah. happen time and have something else going on that morning. And it was like, I really want to be there and I feel bad. I'm going to lose my voting rights, but also like, I got to do the things. Exactly. Know, so, exactly. So yeah. So what happens with it is on the virtual, it was very hard, but we stuck at it to try to make sure that all the discussion happened through hint raising on the app. And so everybody was on the app. Even That's great. It. So that way we could at least have some kind of cue and not completely, because when people shout things out too often, it's really hard on the virtual participants. And so we had tried yeah. really hard to make sure that we did not do that for that reason because it is problematic. And I think that there are little workarounds that we can start to do on that to make sure that the mixed media works together well. Excellent. Tell me about the platform that you work on at SA Open that you're really keen on. So there's a bunch of different pieces that are happening. There's the platform, which working on open sourcing our open source. And so for that, the platform right now is composed of GitLab CE, Mattermost, We're doing some stuff. It's not completely finalized with Big Blue Button yet, but we have like a ton of tools that we've added, like Plant UML and Gatsby and doing the scientific and mathematic notation libraries so that we get all these different things to support all the little nerdly things that we need. And then as we go along, we hope to also submit some of those back to those open source groups. If we do create a balloting measure in GitLab, we'll send that back to them. So this is a, an open alternative to using the entire Microsoft team suite to exactly yeah to using just GitHub's tools, trying to figure out how to instead ensure openness. And you are guinea pig testing it with all of your working groups. At yes, Andre. yeah, yeah. So we have the open source committee, which answers to the BOG Board of Governors, and then we have under them That's a great name for that, by the way. I love that. The and so we have these new advisory groups to make sure that they stay different from other advisory groups in IEEE, because once again, everything seems to be huge and larger than life. We have the OS, open source, 
marketing advisory group, the open source technology group, and the open source community group with the subgroups underneath them. So focusing in on the open source piece, right? So that we can distinguish that. And they're working on different best practices. So like the marketing group did a whole social media toolkit. And then they created this calendar where they've got a process for submitting open source events that then get evaluated by them. And then they vote on them and then add them to the calendar so that we can maybe start to have a universal calendar. That might be nice. And then we've also got like the technical advisory group did some best practices on production readiness Mm -hmm. and also how they believe that we should evolve the platform openly and what Mm -hmm. that would look like a normal process for it. So yeah, so there's a lot of stuff like that going on. And then of course, the DEI group and the badging group that works with chaos. There's a lot going on there. So tell me about what's dear to your heart. What are you going to be talking about at this conference? This conference, my next one is going to be about good governance and what that means. What does that mean? There's a lot that's there, right? (laughs) And that's one of the things that we're trying to tackle with the new standards working group is, and they're going, what is all of this? And what does that mean? Because there's the community aspect, of course. And then there's like the bylaws and such. And then, oh God, there's all the legal. Oh, and hey, we're still doing software here. So we're going to talk about release management and production readiness and security and compliance and all this other stuff. It's like, there's a lot that's there that maybe not every open source project needs at the beginning. (laughs) Yeah. But later on, they run into. Exactly. Because so much of this, I feel like so often these are all healing of my scars for being involved in this for so long, having an IP issue on one project, having someone kidnap a trademark on another, you know, having the money issues, all of these different things. It's like, yeah, let's work our way past this. I've been in enough code of conduct groups now to realize that yes, they're very necessary and B, you need to set up a lot more than just a COC. Yeah. Question we've been to ask for a while is how do you think that your platform, well, serving the needs of its members mm-hmm. is excellent and serving the needs of the open source community as a lofty goal, if it works for the people it works for, let's, let's hope it does. And mm-hmm. each of those separate cars that you mentioned, GitLab, CE, Mattermost, et cetera, those can all get feedback in some way to improve their own projects right. using the platform. So that's also a good. But tell me how it lends itself towards a more sustainable, more diverse market or ecosystem of open source? So when I look at a lot of the different things, I see open source is going through three levels. We had our developer to developer, which honestly was kind of sponsored by academia. Yeah, it was. People don't like to admit that, but the government funding of academia sponsored a lot of that. It wasn't even sponsored by academia. It was sponsored by the military, which invested in MIT. Right, exactly. Kind of both. Well, and then all the other stuff that did evolve, a lot of them were academics, all the different other protocols that came out, how they came out, all that kind of stuff. And then we reached stage two, which is corporate. And we've struggled a lot to keep our soul. And sometimes we haven't. And there's a lot of diversity that goes on there, but whatever. This is where we're at. I miss thankfully, my CDs. <laughs> thankfully, OSI <laughs> held the line on licensing for Thank so much you. stuff. 25 years. Oh, yes. Hell yeah. And so I think that's the main reason things didn't completely collapse. Now we're entering in a a third era and that third era is going back to the academia and government pieces. And with that comes that cultural shift again for standardizations and processes and things of that nature. You know, when I took this role, I got 150 emails off of LinkedIn 
from people going, how is this going to help us or hurt us at open source? I think that's good. At least you got the feedback. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it was, it was crazy because first of all, yeah. a bunch of people are going like, are you going to create standards and are these standards going to kill us? And then also, can you help with the funding problem? People are still worried about that particular question. I've had multiple people uh, in the past two days be like, what about the Cyber Resilience Act? Exactly. Going to hurt my ability to do open source. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's policy, right? That's not even standards. It's like, but you, yeah, you, yeah. if you haven't created the standards, then the policy is going to go haywire. And that's one reason I've had a bunch of standards bodies and governmental bodies come to me on this, where they're like, where are you going? What are you doing? You know, and I'm not lobbying them. I'm not doing anything along those lines. It's basically nerd to nerd, subject matter expert kind of conversations. But it's like, if you don't figure what these are going out, then the politicians are going to figure it out for you. And then none of us are going to be happy. So we have to get together and figure out what these are going to look like and how to make them fair and balanced. And go through all of our standardization processes anyhow. I mean, all of these governments, all these groups, we have these groups. It's just that the hard part is we don't always move fast enough. And that's the hard piece to keep ahead of. And that's one reason why we did the open source stuff that we were doing is because trying to manage any open code or open data or open hardware in a PDF is just not a functional thing. It's not workable. It's very problematic and it's not safe. So your average OSPO or developer group or developer, if you're listening, I don't think a lot of developers listen to this podcast, but I hope you do. Please let me know. Podcast, that's the same OSS.org. We'll get to me. But those of you who are listening, like how can we get involved in these discussions? Is it joining the standards groups at IEEE or are there other ways of becoming part of the group that says, oh yeah, this policy's got mm-hmm. What do we do? Yeah, well, it's funny for us because like we don't do a lot of policy. We do a lot more on the, on the standards part. And it's funny because there's all these different kinds of standards. And unfortunately, there's something called an open standard, which is not the same as open source. No, no, it's different. And it causes huge cultural cracks to appear. What we do at IEEE is we have two things. We have entity and individual. For ours, we're doing individual, which is why anybody can show up. Anyone can participate. You don't have to be a member. You know, you just have to attend and be present at a lot of these meetings. And that's an obvious attempt to prevent certain types of dominance or things of that nature, people flooding the voting thing or, you know what I mean? Like all that kind of stuff. And then we do a lot of different stuff to prevent corporate dominance, like calling out of the affiliations, making sure that everybody knows that when someone says da-da-da, that's where they're coming from and things of that nature. And so we do a lot of work in regards to that to try to make sure that that's there. And so I think that's one good way of influencing things is helping create those standards. Our ethics and design one, which is the 7000 series that my co-patriot, John Havens, works on. He's a wonderful guy. So his group did this 7000 series with the ethics and design aspect, and it got cited in the EC's new paper on ethical AI. 7,074, 7,000 languages spoken by humans or 7,000 what? It's actually the number of our standard series. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, also good. Also good. So all the 7,000s are going to be based on this and they're going to be, they're an open standard, which yeah. means they're open, but they're also free because we've got sponsorships so cool. that we don't have to charge for them either. Cool. And so that's free and open. And then I'm working with different ones about any open source components that they may have as well. Let me ask a clarifying question mm-hmm. to follow up. Where can people get involved? Two websites. There's saopen.ieee.org and go to getting started for creating an account to start participating in the community in general, because we write a lot of best practices there before we take them to standards. And also getting involved in the standards group would be 
sagroups.ieee.org slash OSSPG and join the mailing list. A lot of our work's going to get done in the mailing list and the GitLab. And just to be clear, that's S-A as in the letter S, letter A, not S-A. And it's I-triple-E as in I-E-E-E-E, not I-T-R-P-E-T-R-E, et cetera. Yeah, oh, yes. So, very convenient. Thank you. Don't Google yes. I-triple-E. It doesn't work. Yes. I-E-E-E. Yes. Excellent. Where can people follow you on the internet, Salona? I'm just Salona at Salona.com. I've also got Salona on Twitter, Salona on LinkedIn. I'm on Mastodon Social, and I'm also on FOSS. One of the false ones. Yeah, one of the false I forget ones. which one that is. But Salona, very common name, easy to find. <laughs> Look for the purple hair in the internet. Salona, it's been great having you. Thank you so much for being talking today. I hope you continue to make the world a more standardized, but most week less. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about open source sustainability. <laughs> My guest, Marco, was just saying... He's always wanted to be a podcaster. So here we are. Here we are. Yeah, I mean, in my private life, I'm renewable energy activist. You could call that, but from a scientific engineering perspective, I'm doing a lot of local talks and webinars. And I'm not doing a podcast out of that, but too much ideas, a little time. So this is the last podcast of the day of the conference, even at State of Open which is the first conference of its kind, dedicated to open source stuff in London. We've had a sustained track this entire time, and I've been largely avoiding it. Instead, I've been down here in the podcast room and walking around the stalls, talking to people, seeing who would be a good guest. Now, Mark, who I promised to follow up on and then totally failed to, managed to track me down afterwards. So I'm very excited he's on the podcast. Marco Müller. Marco Müller. Müller. Weird jungle word, you know. Very difficult to say. Litauer is also difficult, but it's fine. Monaco is working in, as you said, energy activism. But you also, maybe you want to follow That's my hobby. I had a startup in the drone space for quite some years. We had done totally closed source drones. Okay, we used open source, but the product has been closed source. We did that, sold that company to Intel. And shortly after, the entire drone space was really revolutionized by open source. And also our unit guns could crunch by this revolution. And having seen that... And then looking for something new to do, we got by accident into a charging project, have seen that like, okay, look, this makes no sense what you're doing here. You're reinventing the wheels for the fifth hundred time. One, it's starting it with open source and then be the disruption for the entire industry. And that's what we're doing now because we've seen it from the other side and now we want to be that disruption ourselves. Fascinating. Okay. So you're talking about EV charging, electric vehicles. Because I think 40% of all the electricity consumption in the future might go to EVs or so. Wait, 20, Ridiculous. 20 to 40. And at the same time, they can also buffer electricity for the grid. So they are a huge component for the future of our sustainable energy consumption supply chain and also future of carbon neutral mobility. So I think with my activism background, with my engineering background, this is the place where I can also make my work count. Amazing. Okay, so I don't know a ton about EV charging stations. I don't know a ton about the entire electrical engineering aspect. So I want to ask first, you're writing code for the charging station itself. So this is the thing that attaches to the Tesla or the Volt. Yes, that's basically the thing between your car and the power grid. Okay, the thing cool. which makes the connection. So there's no Volt or whatever you call it. Excellent. So there's no code that you're running or working on which has to do with how the grid is utilized or going to the grid. It's just coming off the grid to the car. 
So if you look at a charging station, it's kind of this multi-adapter device like a Swiss Army knife yeah. where you talk to a car, you talk to a human in, next to the car, try to fill it with some payment cards or whatever. You talk to the cloud for payment reasons, for managing of this IoT device reasons. You talk to maybe a local solar inverter, maybe you're to your neighbor to cut charges because you have to balance some energy. Maybe you talk to the power grid. Make sure you're not over-consuming something. So you have a lot of directions, a lot of protocols, and you have to sort that out. Fascinating. Okay, so you're at this really weird intersection where you're not just, again, this is sustained podcasts talking about open source sustainability, and 99.9% of our podcasts are about governance or funding or burnout. But you're talking about, like, legitimately sustainability of the environment and sustainability of your project which is really cool. Tell me about Pionix. Is that yes. how you pronounce it? That's our company. Cool. And how many people are in your company? Uh, about 20. 20. And is everything you write open source? Majority. So what we entirely open source is the software stack for the charging station, where you still have to make some money. So how we do that yes. is that we helping companies to utilize the stack on the hardware. So basically going to, let's assume Samsung would be a charger company instead of a phone company. Then they would go to us instead of to Google. So okay. kind of this idea. Yeah. And so you help install it and you help run it and help maintain it? Yes. Oh, cool. So you have like security contracts, that sort of thing? That's what we do. Okay. We basically testing every update from the software on a lot of cars, on all the different chargers, like really on that hardware type, making sure everything still works, nothing breaks in between, pushing up the updates. And we're also working on also closed source. We have like user interface, which is still closed source. On the other hand, we have reference designs for charging station, which are entirely open source, entire hardware, firmware, everything. So user interface is at the moment a closed source, but everyone can add something, APIs are open. And we also work on a digital twin in the cloud. So the idea is we want to sustain the assets out there, like the cool. charging stations. Yeah. If you want to do that, you have to know how healthy they are. Maybe if the fan is breaking almost. Yes, so yep, you want yep. to rewarm the operators so they send someone out before it breaks. You can get the uptime higher off this really expensive public assets. And is the dashboard open source? The dashboard will be closed source. It will be closed source. Um, yeah, okay. Somewhere. I mean, it's still with those open source companies. They may be open sourcing 90% of that they do, but maybe not 100 and yeah. We're really, really on the open side. Yeah. Um, if you look on what others are doing, they either doing like a crappy version open source, another programming language, then the good version, which is closed source. So you can't build a community around that yeah. do it this way. Others are going with GPL code, which is totally nice. The problem is you can't convince big companies to use GPL code. I know that from my history, they hate it. So we went for all Apache. So it's really, really permissive licensed and everything you need to running a charger is open source. Got it. I asked because a good friend of mine actually is an electrical engineer and he has a dashboard that works for large estates where they help figure out like, is your turbine going to break? Send someone out. And yes. Fix it. And we, we gain a lot of those things. And especially the, the idea of doing this open sources and also doing using the Apache license. If you have a good friend who's an electrical engineer, in case you want to build a charger, maybe also close source product. We're fine with that. Cool. They also have to make money, yeah. but they maybe want to add something. They're super secret source of. Connecting this to the power plant next door, then we're fine if they keep this layer closed source. But if they find bugs in our stuff, they even could keep that closed source. But typically, they will contribute it back. When we talk about contributors, have you had a lot of open source contributors that contribute to the projects? So we started this project making it public a year ago. And since then, we have seen way more than 10 different hardwares already installed this. Cool. On NDAs, so I can't talk about all of them. 
We get a lot of software contributions from ChargeByte, which is one of the charger controller PCB makers. Yeah. They had their own firmware before. Now they're switching entirely to open source to Everest, which is super awesome for us. Sure. They're donating really cute chunks of codes. Both are working with Texas Instruments, Fitech, and others. I cannot name yet, but will announce soon. These are component suppliers for charging stations. Amazing. And they all committed to Everest and running that as their default stack on the hardware. So we're expecting to have, with all this push from the supply chain, really, really growing the community. That's also what we see behind the scenes. Do you do any open source integrations with open source projects like Voltron, which helps figure out like open source compatibility for entire campuses and the like for all of their hardware devices? I haven't heard of them, to be honest. That's okay. Don't worry about it. There's so much great stuff out there. There really is. And there's actually not a great comprehensive survey, except Tobias Augsburgers, who was also at this conference, who also talked about environmental sustainability projects. Do check his out, his report. It's on our forum, discourse.org. You check it out too. Moving on from there, I know that Bionix is also part of LF Energy, right? Yes. Can you tell me how that works? So LF Energy stands for Linux Foundation Energy, which is a sub group with the Linux Foundation. Yep. So the Linux Foundation itself is large, I don't know, a non-profit organization with still a huge budget. I think they also sponsor Linux too much, I think. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And having like a... Like a year or something. I mean, it's all open because it's open source. I mean, it's well, like... Well, it's easy. I mean, it's basically there for a thousand corporate members yeah. from startup to big ones. And yeah. we also remember we're paying our tiny fee there. And we also pay a fee to Linux Foundation Energy, which is a subgroup on around renewable energy transition, like steering the power grid of the future from substations to charging to forecast of solar radiation for tomorrow so you can steer your energy demand. I mean, the power grid of the future will be more complex and will be way more interconnected, will be have way more entities, smaller ones. And that means software and it means connecting different entities. So you want to do that open source. And there's a lot of people driving that, even beyond the Inoxidation Energy. I want to know what they give you as an incubator. How does it help you? So first of all, for us, it's visibility. So cool. as a small startup, we donated our code, our idea into them. They actually checked a couple of different open source projects because they looked something, oh, we need EVs. And they picked us, so we're super happy and proud of that. Yeah, so this gives us a big brand name behind our tiny project, Everest Lane. That helps us with driving attention. They're doing super good marketing for all the projects. They're doing connecting all the projects together. They're doing a good job there. They have this formalized project by process. What does it mean to be a project and growing and have different incubation levels and accepting criteria? But it also gives our users confidence like, yeah, Pionix, Everest, and all the others, they're taking it seriously. They're following best practices, quality standards. So this helps us. And basically, you know, source project competing companies are collaborating. This could be a legal issue if you're doing it closed door and secretly, but if you do it out there publicly with certain rules, and new solution energy is assuring those, that's fine, that's awesome. So they're giving us a neutral playing ground or stage where we could collaborate. And are you registered as a GmbH in Germany? Yes. Okay, do you have to give up any shares or anything to join LF? No, no, no. It's just a fee, it's just you, so first of all, you can contribute with code and with products without becoming a member. Exactly, yeah. So nothing. If you want to become a member for a startup, it's, I think, either 10K a year for new solution energy or 5K a year for the energy and 5K for the new solution. Yeah, cool. So yeah. So it's, yeah. it's affordable. Yeah, and it's part of your marketing budget, essentially. Basically. Yeah, more and more, it's networking. It's another budget. Yeah, okay, <laughs> cool. Excellent. And you said you had 20 people on those projects and you started a couple of years ago? 
inofficially we started mid 2020 with having a side business consulting a charter maker and realized, ah, oh, the disruption we just seen in the other company will happen here again. Then we started coding and it created Pionix, I think, two years ago, beginning of 21. We released then the source code was LF Energy beginning 22. And you said you're not profitable yet. Tell me about your investors. <laughs> yeah, who are your investors? So at the moment there, as first of all, we're in the middle of a seed round that also works quite well at the moment, really in deep discussion there. But we raised last year was mainly from large-scale business angels and smaller VCs. From mobility space, we have some really nice advisors. For example, the former Audi CTO, Peter Mertens, is one of our advisors and investors, former manager from McKinsey in the energy space, a senior partner, Sven Helikak is with us. So we created an ecosystem around us, which reflects what we do, because we are between the chairs. We are energy, we are IoT, we are software, we are automotive, we are connecting to cars. So we're playing a lot of fields and also our advisors and investors coming from all of those fields. Now, how do you ensure that they all have open source at heart? Because you do want to stay an open source company. To be honest, this is kind of the first shocking moment for all the investors here. You're giving out your software. Exactly. Please. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. So this makes it a bit more complex to talk to them. But those who stay really believe in the vision, because in our opinion, this is the only way to become world domination scale software Yeah. without open source can never do that. So that's your main pitch is saying like open source is a competitive advantage in the field. Yes. Fascinating. Do you have any provisions in your funding documents that say we commit to staying open source for the sake of our contributors? No, we don't have that. But honestly, I mean, everything we do, we do it out there in the wild. All the code we have is on GitHub, on the public repository. Except for the dashboards and the like. So not all the code. Actually, there's, code. there's still always coming something new to that. Yeah. We're doing all our meetings publicly in the wild. And cool. sure, we could do something. We could fork from that. Clearly, nothing's preventing us. But yeah, we're all in on this idea. So yeah. it would take us really a while to divert from that idea. So not worth it. Excellent. Okay, cool. I end because I just... Trying to figure out, like, how does this work as a business model? We don't talk to a lot of startups in this podcast. Mainly we're talking to foundations, we're talking to Oslo managers, we're talking to policymakers, we're talking to maintainers. And so it's really interesting to hear about just straight out open source business models. We got VC funding. This is what we do. It just makes sense. There's some VCs that really specialize in open source. Yes. They have some really nice decks. We deck through, like, how to sort out. I mean, even Andreessen Horowitz, one of the big... Silicon Valley ones, they're all in on, let's say, open source disruption. The downside for startups is like, it takes longer to profitability. Like all you have this product market fit, and then you have the scaling phase. In yep. open source startups, you have like this community fit phase before. And on the good hand, it's super easy to create, let's say, value creation, to yep. create something good there for the community. It's harder to make value capture. But as a physicist, you're multiplying two numbers. You just have to make sure if the one goes down, the other goes up. So in total, we think this is a winning game for us. Really, so, really cool. What are the challenges for you? Yeah, particularly we have to play catch up. So far, I would think this market was closed source. So we have to start from an empty piece of paper. But I think we did really, really well on that. So now we are productive, running with some products out there, which are to be released now. Is it all C, by the way? Everything which ends up in the charger is C++17. Okay. So we had this discussion like, ah, oh, should we do Rust or C++? <laughs> we run Rust. And we decided, for, okay, Rust would be better probably, but 
too little people speak it. So no. we go for C++, but make it the clean way. So we really cool. try to stick to the newest things. Yeah, we have to play catch up. I think we did really well. And now it's all about adding something awesome no one else has. And this is now the transition between those two phases. Yeah, and again, created a new awesome middleware between all those charging modules. So you can configure whatever charger or energy management system you need out of that. By the way, energy management or home energy management is another field where we could play on in the future. So yeah. if we make a pivot, we could extend there. And we have created this middleware to connect all of the pieces. Sometimes asking myself, is it really worth it? But I think something really cool turned out of this. Where as an electrical engineer, you typically work with this block diagrams like this block here, that block here, put a wire in between like component integration and kind of replicated that for the chargers. Because chargers are also built like from electrical building blocks. So every software component is representing one building block. You can wire up the software as you wire up the hardware. Yeah. This makes it really cool on a meta level. So you can meta level. German, I'm assuming. Yeah. And LF Energy and open source. What are you doing in the state of open? We had a couple of open source conferences. We have been last week on FOSTEM. We sponsored and orchestrated with LF Energy and with two, three companies, Alianda and Pionix. The energy dev room had an entire day all about renewable energy and open source. Cool. And we couldn't barely squeeze everything in what we got. Next year, we tried to get a two days track on this. Good luck. You know, Boston was super crowded, <laughs> but there was super much interest in open source. And I mean, also climate change, renewable energy. This is a really literally hot topic nowadays. Yeah, yeah. And we think it's worth it. Yeah, I'm here because it got invited from Linux Foundation, from Open Charge Alliance, from Open UK. We have friends organizing Dev Tank. Maybe you know them. Yeah. They're co-organizing the Open UK Summit here. Cool. Okay. Makes sense. Where can people learn more about Pionix? Pionix.com. Yes. And where people learn more about you and your open source strategies. Just contact me. Maybe you can put something in the show notes below to contact me. Either or just find me on LinkedIn, Marco Muella or Mona. But M-O-L-L-E-R. Yes. Fantastic. You're really good at podcasting this. I do. I lived in Germany for a while, so it helps. Yeah. Once you find something out about Everest, subscribe to our mailing list. Or go to our GitHub page, github.com slash Everest, like the mountain, and you will find everything from there. Super. Well, thank you so much. This was absolutely excellent. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's really cool to be able to meet at the intersection of open source sustainability and environmental sustainability. I think we should do that a bit more. So again, thank you. Best of luck. And I hope you keep going. Thank you, John, for the validation as well. Let's continue this and maybe repeat it a year later. Excellent. 